finally made it to the table. This is the first episode of Listen In. How y'all doing? Do I? Yeah. 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 Happy to be here. I am. I am. Very cool. Me too. So I guess we should start with introducing ourselves. Yeah. Right? So why don't you start, Daniel? Um, well, um, Chicago guy all my life. Um, so grow up grew up thinking I would probably leave the city at some point, but I think forty seven years in, I think I'm here for good now. So um (laughs) Uh, been in church all my life. My dad was a pastor and a fairly famous scholar, and so grew up learning Greek and Hebrew from the time I was little. And uh, didn't think I'd go into church work. I was in the dot com world for a while, but ended up kind of finding my way into church work. And so worked at a big mega church in the suburbs called Willow Creek in my twenties, and then been here with the y'all at this church, River City, since January of two thousand three. So that's kind of my background in terms of my interest in this. Um, obviously, become deeply passionate about um, as I follow Jesus believing. I mean, I just to say it simply, I don't think you can follow Jesus in this day and age and not hate white supremacy, hate anti-blackness. I, I think they have to be paired together. I think something's wrong with our faith if that's not being produced. So that's not historically been a shared conviction across white Christianity, but we're in a moment now. Um, the rhetoric is increasing. People are talking about this more. I don't think any of us know what that means yet, but um, you know, I, for me, I think this podcast represents something really unique in that I think white people should be talking about this. I think we should be taking it very seriously. And I don't think we should be leading the conversation, to say the obvious. Not only should we not be leading the conversation, we shouldn't even be leading our own selves in this. Um, the, the growing level of interest should ignite something in us to say that um, we need to be listening to credible voices that are have been leading in this work, leaders of color who have been leading in this. And so I feel like this is kind of a double... Uh, has double meaning for me. I, I, I want the white folks who kind of participate in my ministry to see that I'm not trying to lead this conversation. I'm listening. Yeah. Um, but at a very specific level, you too, you know, are the ones who shape my thinking so much. And I love even this, the diversity of our friendship, you know, with Brandon. You and me have been part of River City since the very beginning. So we grew up together here. Right? Yeah. And that, that's a very different, right? I mean, it's like if somebody would have listened in to you and I's conversation 14, 15 years ago, they would have heard something very different than yeah. now, yeah. right? Yeah, and so you've always been a formative voice for me, but you were growing, I was growing. We've kind of figured that out together. So I treasure the longevity of that friendship. And then, Shmika, you and I started on totally different footing. You were already an established leader here in Chicago, um, doing a lot of prominent stuff around economic development in the city, already had a developed... Um, consulting company, had worked with a number of different leadership organizations and businesses doing racial equity work. Uh, we've now served for a number of years kind of on the board here. And so, um, you know, we entered each other's lives at a very different point than Brandon and I did, and yet you're both really instrumental voices for me. So this represents something really significant for me. It's me listening into y'all, and it's just at a selfish level, I feel like it's me sharing with my broader community some of the voices that have been most influential for me. Yeah, yeah. you kind of just admitted to the audience that you're a softie, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, tearing up a little bit. I'll get it back together in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, for me, um, well, yeah. So I, I introduced myself a little bit and then talk a little bit why why listening is yeah. uh, a project that I'm, I'm very much interested in and excited about. Um, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago, uh, born and raised, and I specify south side because it's the best side of the city. <laughs> I want that to be known. I want that to be articulated and reverberated throughout the 
annals. So a lot of folks are not going to know that in Chicago, everybody says the West Side is the best side. So they don't realize how much you're trying to pick a fight, even within your own city. Like, this, uh, yeah, is, this is yeah. Brandon. This he's is got, what I do. He's going <laughs> to pick fights everywhere he goes. Not so. to mention, it doesn't even rhyme. I know. It's like it has no it has no flow to it. Oh, because it don't rhyme. It has no flow whatsoever. Please continue. Please continue. Let me just finish. South is the best side. So I grew up I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Traverse the South Side of Chicago all over. Um, grew up to, to a single mother, and all this is influential and impactful in the way that I see the world and the yeah. theology that I have and how I come to know God. Uh, um, you know, we had some saying that I had a, I had a praying grandmother, <laughs> but I, I had a praying mother. My, my mom was a, a church mother in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally woke us up with the word, put us to bed with the word, yeah. spanked us with the word. <laughs> like, like, it, it, was, it, like yeah. it was Jesus everything, you know? Like, <laughs> so uh, so I, one way or the other, either I was gonna love Jesus or hate him, you know? And, um, and fortunately, I, I love him, you know? Yeah. Um, mm. So uh, that, that impacted so much of my life and my upbringing. Um, and obviously, you know, like, being on the south side of Chicago, having to navigate um, um, some intense poverty, and eventually my mom decided, you know, like getting us out to the burbs, you know. Um, and moving out to the burbs was like one of the most influential um, identity formation parts of my uh, of my um, growing up, um, largely because it, it, it reminded me that I was black, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in a homogenous neighborhood um, on the south side, all black. You never really had to differentiate yourself. Move out to the burbs, and I realized, oh wait, oh no, I'm different, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and, I, and it was a community of people that kept reminding me how different yeah. I was, you know. Um, and almost like, you know, Mama was right, you know. My mom would tell me these stories and narratives about how to navigate the world, um, as she knew it. Mm-hmm. And um, and eventually, a lot of that was confirmed in that space. So, all that to say that, like my experiences growing up, my experience in the suburbs. Um, fast forward, running into Daniel, and eventually coming to River City. And um, having um, this this theology of reconciliation, kind of having um, being a part of my growth and formation um, as a, as a theologian, as a believer, and eventually as a pastor. Yeah. Um, so uh, Daniel talked a lot about how you know, I, I, like I was an influential voice at River City and influential influential voice in his life. Uh, it, it was reciprocal. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm excited to share kind of like that dialogue, that back and forth, that dynamic you and I have, Shamika, as well. Um, as we we kind of like you know we we'll go back and forth over South Side West Side obviously but uh, <laughs> but there there's this dynamic that exists in our group that I think would be impactful for folks to hear and be a part of so I'm excited about that aspect of it I think um, my bio my reasons for listening kind of coincide with one another yeah. um, in the sense that I don't see a way around this as we see this 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 narrative and this story perpetuating um, all throughout our nation and in the world. Um, we're, we're having so many people putting in their input as to how we're going to solve for um, yeah. white supremacy. How are we going to solve for the, the inequities of um, of our day? And uh, I feel like they're, they're, it needs to be anchored in, in the word. It needs yeah. to be anchored in Jesus um, um, for there to be sustainable change. Um, our people have been longing for change for a long time. And yeah. um, um, for me, um, anything I can do to move this forward and, and anchor it into something that can be sustainable, mm-hmm. that from generations from now we can yeah. say we moved the needle, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that the, the needle's moved, you know. Um, I don't want, um, I don't want to have to circle back around and like have to navigate this over and over again. Yeah. I don't want generations from now, my kids, kids having to, 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 to fight with this. Yeah. Um, so yeah. uh, may their battle be easier than ours, you yeah. know. So yeah, that, that's the reason why I'm here. Uh, Shamik, why don't you tell me a little bit while you're here? Um, yeah. Outside the fact that, you know, never mind. <laughs> I'm actually here because I met Daniel on Twitter. Oh yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's how I came to to meet Daniel and find out about this church. 
Um, so that was like six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been here ever since. But I'm originally from Chicago, from the west side of Chicago. The best side of Chicago. <laughs> we, won't, we won't hold it against you. <laughs> we won't hold it against you. Um, but I'm a fourth generation Chicagoan. My family came to Chicago during the mass black migration in the 1950s. Um, my great-grandfather was a proud, hard-working man, um, strong patriarch. And so a lot of the way he led our family um, is what shaped like my um, my beliefs around community and justice and love and family. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a fierce man of God, and so I was born into a family that firmly believed. Um, so yeah, so I came back to Chicago. I spent about, I don't know, seven years in banking, and my career took me to a few different markets, but it was time to come back home, and when I came back home, it felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after coming back, I found this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similar to what you were just saying, Brandon, the only time I feel empowered and hopeful um, when I'm thinking about white supremacy or anti-blackness or any other social ill um, is when I'm thinking about it through a theological lens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If I'm thinking about it or talking about it or engaging with it outside of that, um, I feel despondent. Mm-hmm. I feel hopeless. I feel tired. I'm quickly fatigued. Yeah. Um, so the only way through this for me is through the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. through His Son, the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's largely what brings yeah. me to the table yeah. um, to have this conversation. And I've always enjoyed. I grow a lot from our interactions when we talk. Mm-hmm. Um, my thoughts are sharper. Um, I'm held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm better, and yeah. so um, yeah. it was. Yeah. It was a no-brainer for me to sign up for an opportunity to like just spend more time with you all, thinking about some of the things that I think about most of the time. Anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we uh, had actually done a four-part series at our church that was around white supremacy and anti-blackness. And that series, the catalyst for that series were the uprisings um, that were happening across the country. And as we all know, those uprisings were triggered by the lynchings of black men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, And as videos of those lynchings started to spread, um, we knew that we needed to um, support our church. Um, our church is multi-ethnic and multi-racial, so we needed to prepare ourselves to support our body yeah. as um, they were responding to and processing those very painful events. Mm-hmm. And so that set us off on what we now see as a very definite journey um, to talk about white supremacy and anti-blackness. And it's actually why this episode is called Bedfellows, White Supremacy and Anti-Blackness, because yeah. it was clearer to us than ever before. Right that white supremacy and anti-blackness go hand in hand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we spent four weeks having very frank conversations right. about what that meant for our body, what that meant for our church, the yeah. impact um, and the manifestation of that on our daily lives. And then we decided to punctuate that four-part series um, with the roundtable conversation, which was the culmination of all of those other conversations, um, where we summarized what we heard and what we learned. Um, and we talked about the way that those things were stirring in us. And so what you're going to hear um, is the conversation that happened at the end of that four-part series. All right, um, I'm gonna take some stabs at just kind of putting some questions out here that capture some of the conversations we've been having as we're talking about what we need to be doing individually, what our body needs to be thinking about, how we move forward together. So let me take a little bit of time to get, so common language is what the questions we about, but I'll say a little bit on this. Um, it feels like both theologically it's important to describe what we're up against, um, what's required of us, um, period. I, I, I think we're also living in a time, there's this kind of 
elevated conversation around this right now in the larger society, which hopefully some good will come of that. We don't know even what that means. i do not not even trying to get into that yet. Just simply trying to point to the fact in this elevated time of conversation, lots of people are saying really honestly a lot of different things. And there's a lot of different kinds of ways of framing and talking about this. Um, and so less about judging everybody and how we're doing that. It really feels like it almost doubles down on the importance of how we talk about this and develop kind of common language within our faith community. And so um, that's what I'd like to kind of open up to. We've, we're, we're really leaning into this language, particularly in the series of white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? And what that represents, but also what's just married to what white supremacy is built on is anti-blackness, right? right? And so um, rather than even just a fast answer, so I'd like to just open this up for a little bit to like talk about the importance of that common language, the importance of understanding the nature of white supremacy and anti-blackness, uh, the importance of just being so vivid and clear and precise in kind of describing that. So w- multiple, we can go multiple times in this. I think just taking a few swings until it feels like we've kind of played this out, I think it would be good to stay here for a minute. So common language, white supremacy, anti-blackness, what's the importance of that? What, what would you all say? What, you know, this has come up throughout this series. What are some of the things that we just really need to be so clear on when we're talking about this? I'm just reminded of a refrain that we've used um, in our church before, um, which is you can't conquer what you don't confront and you can't confront what you don't identify. Yeah, say that again. So you can't conquer you what can't you don't confront. You don't confront and you can't, and confront, you can't confront what you don't, don't identify. identify yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. Um, and similarly, in like secular places in the marketplace and consulting, um, before you can begin to craft a solution, you have to have the right problem statement. That's right. Right? And so it speaks to the power of naming. Yeah. Um, if we are not clear about the evil that we are attacking, Yes. We will prescribe solutions and antidotes that are not fitting. Yes. Um, we will not see uh, healing. We will not see deliverance and we'll grow frustrated. Yeah. Right. Um, and the enemy will use that against us yeah. to discourage us from staying engaged in the battle. And so it's it's significant. It's paramount that we name the lie. We name the evil clearly from yeah. the start so that we know exactly what we're attacking and yeah. what we need to use to attack it. Yeah. 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 And, and to chime along with that, um, in full agreement, um, I think this is of vast importance that we keep white supremacy and anti-blackness tethered together. Yeah. Um, because I think in, in a lot of ways we we talk about white supremacy almost as if it's in a vacuum, as if white people are making these decisions and choices and they just they have these delusions of grandeur and and now they're operating with this like kind of exclusive thinking that, that has no real last impact on other people is just that they're rude <laughs> they're not thinking about other people and stuff like that but to understand that white supremacy is tied to anti-blackness that that in order for there to be uh, supremacy for whites there has to be the extinguishing and the the minimization of blackness mm-hmm. um, and I think you see that played out in our conversations when we start talking about uh, we start talking about black lives matter and you see white folks response are always like immediately like well other lives matter too you know like because they, we operate on a paradigm where where if one is superior the other one is minimized if one is loved the other one is extinguished yeah. and um, that's where you see that paradigm played out when you, you hear people say like black lives matter and immediately white folks get this this nervousness and this like this like uh, just jitteriness associated with it largely because like they operate from a space and, and a, a way of seeing it as that if if they matter then I don't yeah so let me pause it because it's the first time I've heard you make this link this week and I think it sounds right on but um, I think probably most of our bodies familiar with that kind of tendency that happens right where one of the ways the term black lives matter has been diminished is to mm-hmm. say all lives matter right um, and uh, and I think 
probably people know that there's something wrong about that, but I think you're making a very important, explicit kind of point here, right? So you're saying within this framework of how white supremacy works, where not only, like for white supremacy to exist, you have to have black inferiority, mm-hmm. right? And so if I'm hearing you right, you're almost saying when you try to address black inferiority and say that there is inherent human value in that, that yep. it actually triggers the whole system of white supremacy where it's 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 almost like this retaliation almost. Like, so, so, so I just want to make sure you say, like, we're hearing you clearly because I think that's an important observation. Like, like absolutely. Like, so, like, like I, I, I use a phrasing all the time, like, superhuman is subhuman. Like, mm-hmm. and we live on those paradigms where white folks are understood and seen society as superhuman above the threshold of humanity. Um, and that um, blacks have been categorized in, in America as subhuman. Um, and so whenever you see that equilibrium tried to establish, um, white folks get disoriented. And the idea is that, like, you know, I, I, I got to somehow course correct. And whenever they're, they're, that equilibrium starts to, to, to manifest itself, you, you'll see white people lash out. Like, now you're bringing me down um, because you're elevating your humanity. And they, they won't articulate it that way. What, they, what they'll say is, you're taking away my freedom. You're trying to take away my country. You're trying to take away my liberty. You're trying to take away my things. Um, as if their superiority was a birthright <laughs> or, or that is somehow exclusively something that belonged to them. Um, and that, that has been... Um, that narrative has played out over the course every time we have these conversations because one would think someone says Black Lives Matter, the response would be like, yes. Of course. <laughs> of course. You know, and the response ultimately isn't. You know, yeah. So. yeah. I mean, that's consistent, though, with the way our church has talked about it over time. And I'm just reminding, we haven't used this term actually in the last five weeks, I'm reminded in this moment, but the narrative of racial difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you always talk about the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so someone has to be at one right. extreme, someone has to be at the other extreme too. But hearing you articulate it the way you did, and we've had this conversation sort of like behind the scenes, but for the first time I'm hearing, I'm realizing that the all lives matter reaction to the Black Lives Matter declaration is super consistent with the way white supremacy works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, white supremacy, the spirit, the evil spirit of white supremacy hears that as like a real affront. Yes. Yeah. So like, right like, you can't dare be significant that's right. right in my presence that's yeah. right. and I'm yeah. so that's right. there's something that literally rises up in me that's when right. I hear you dare declare that's your right. significance right. and your worthiness right. Right. that beyond my control I declare I matter too yeah. isn't that yeah. consistent with the way white supremacy yeah. works everywhere yeah. 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 And we've heard that all lives matter declaration from the most well-meaning white people, right? Or non-black folks that we know, and we would have never expected them to boldly make the declaration. But I, I, would, I would suggest that it's actually something that is beyond them. It's something that welled up deep in them. And I would suggest that some of them probably even caught themselves by surprise when they declared it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, this just feels so important. It's just, it's just one of hundreds of examples, but it's a clear one to start with. And. Um, I guess to even put a confession of mine onto this, I think one of the things, you know, as a multicultural body, we're trying to recognize everybody's got their a really important experience here. When we talk about white supremacy, even we're recognizing everybody's impacted by it. Mm-hmm. You know, white people differently because we're processing a message of superiority, and that's a different kind of psychological and soul work. But every person of color, at some level, is being told that they're less than based on the, the reality of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's always important we talk about that. With that being said, what can get lost in that is this very definitive reality that white supremacy is designed to attack black humanity yeah. mm-hmm. um, at every level like at a, 
personhood level, at an image of God level, but then at an economic and social level, at a, a way of life level. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as we have now seen another spate of it, and even more so since we've eulogized the, the, the you know, Brianna and Ahmad and George, I mean, a number again of just um, blatant killings of black people, right? So yeah. what I'm trying to get to here is like, it, it does feel important to name the direct way white supremacy attacks black personhood. And I think you guys are highlighting this. It's like, we don't know this exactly, but I think it's probably fair to speculate. If we said Asian lives matter, um, it's, it just doesn't arouse that same level mm-hmm. of, a, no, all lives matter, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If we say mm-hmm. Latinx lives matter, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite arouse mm-hmm. at the same level. Right. There's a reason for that, right? It's not actually mm. singling out, a, it's singling out black life you just you just said something that just really like like there's this almost like no 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 right it reminds Mm -hmm. me of the Amy Mm -hmm. Cooper and Christian Cooper a little Mm -hmm. bit right of like no you don't get to be fully human in my space and if you decide you get to tell me what to do it trips off something in me right because it's not just somebody telling me it's a black Mm -hmm. man telling me and it could have just easily been a black female right but it's a black human being telling me that and in a way that I don't think we give credit to like the the spirit of it the animated spirit of white supremacy right can't handle the declaration of black life in it. So I don't know, do you want to say anything more than that? I'm just real time kind of feeling just how deep that goes. Yeah, for me it's, remi- so my, uh, my belief, my belief um, generally speaking, but specifically as related to like the work that we were aiming to do through Heart to Heart mm-hmm. is that um, a revelation of righteousness, a revelation mm-hmm. of who you are in Jesus Christ yeah. is the cure for internalized white supremacy. Yeah. I believe that with everything in me, right? I believe it for black folks, but I believe it for white people too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When our white brothers and sisters, no, when our non-black brothers mm-hmm. and sisters are clear about who they are in Jesus, that, that desire to challenge every person, every institution, um, every community, every spirit that dares declare that blackness is significant and beautiful and love dies. You no longer have that desire. So. That's significant to me in this moment because I typically think about um, how the revelation of righteousness is the cure for internalized white supremacy when I'm mm-hmm. thinking about black folks. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, I'm being reminded of growing in clarity about how that is equally significant for people who are not black. This is a good point to take a break to tell you about some resources and organizations we appreciate. If you run a small or mid-sized business and want to increase customer engagement through your marketing channels, such as social media, then get in touch with J Productions. That's J-J-A-E-D Productions. They can create beautiful video solutions for your business. You can reach them online at www.jproductions.com. We encourage you to check out White Lies, a resource that shares nine spiritual practices that can help you continue to engage in this important work of racial justice. Please visit whiteliesbook.com to order it everywhere that books are sold. Alfred D. Witt Art is a social impact consultancy that we love. I am the founder and principal consultant, so I'm obviously biased. Nevertheless, Alfred DeWitt Art is a social impact consultancy that works with a cross-section of people and organizations to advance racial equity in communities, enterprises, and systems. Visit us at Alfred DeWitt Art to learn more about our work and contact us to work together to help you or your organization advance racial equity. I think it goes back to like a, a conversation we were trying to we were having um, the other day. I was talking a little bit about the two-ness. Um, we talked about primarily yeah. African American um, spaces, black spaces. 
Um, but I think there's a two-ness that exists in white folks, too. Maybe just know? real quick, just so everybody's on the same page, when we make the assumption of how it starts in the black community, would you just explain that real quick, two-ness? Um, two-ness, oh, well, yeah. That you're, you're two, um, W.B. Du Bois has a, a, a refrain that like is often quoted, um, that that um, in, in America, um, African-Americans, black folks have to navigate this two-ness, um, that they're either both American and, and both black, and they have to navigate that two-ness, and they're two um, separate strivings, moving in two different directions. And so um, you have this kind of oscillation that kind of exists as a black person in America. And you're, and therefore you get the phrases like code switching and so forth in order to navigate that reality. Um, I think um, that on a spiritual level that white folks navigate, navigate the same sort of two-ness. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that their whiteness um, is, is, their whiteness is tied to their personhood. Um, and their access to the power, their access to the privilege, their access to um, the mobility that's associated with it is a demonic force in some ways, you know, um, that actually um, you can decide to what extent, even even as African-Americans, we can decide to what extent we allow that two-ness, the percentages of each striving to take over our life. So if, if the striving to be American overtakes my, my blackness, you will see me acquiesce certain aspects of my personhood or who I believe I, I am, how I was raised, how I see the world. Um, and you can see aspects of that um, start to give way to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the same thing happens with white folks um, um, when, when they're dealing with whiteness and their personhood, is that there's, there's, there's no clear delineation for them because whiteness has taken over so much of their personhood mm-hmm. and, and that the work that needs to go into this to undo it, th- th- therefore the responses that we see, right? Like you get, you get white folks uh, uh, that, that, that hear Black Lives Matter and they snap and they go crazy because the whiteness of their personhood is, 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 con- like is in full control. It, it is taking over and as, as Shamika said, it's this guttural response mm-hmm. to uh, there's a threat. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I need to respond to this threat mm-hmm. immediately. Otherwise, yeah. I am going to be taken out. Yeah, right. I'm going to be taken out. Because like, yeah. they feel their life's at stake because yes. my life has been elevated. Mm-hmm. And, and the only reason right. why you would believe that is that you believe there's, an, there's some level of, of equivalent exchange yeah. that, that for me to matter is for you not to. <laughs> and, 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 and so much of whiteness is built on that idea that for me to matter is for you not to not to. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. when you take that dynamic and, and you say like, to what extent is whiteness governing your personhood? Yes. To what extent is your affiliation and your allegiance to whiteness allowing you to make decisions and choices? And, yeah. I, and I think that's where the internal work should start happening for our white brothers and yeah. sisters. And and I think and I feel that question isn't being asked. I think what, when, when white people hear us say, um, I sh- like like for instance, I like I, I like whiteness is a threat to me. I say I say plain as day, whiteness is a threat to me. And immediately every white person says to themselves, Brandon sees me as a threat. And they, like in my mind is like like how did you get to that conclusion? Yes. How do you see your and because you can't yes. make the distinction when I say whiteness is a threat to me, mm. you then start to defend this demon. Yes. You then yes. start to stand up and fight for this demon and yes. advocate for this demon. And we've seen the church fight for this demon, yes. you know? Wow. And you gotta think through that. Like you gotta, like so that's the that's the that's the rub. That's the yes. little sneaky thing that the enemy does is it has us believing that we are these these mentalities, this way of thinking, these powers yeah. and principalities. We believe that we are one and the same with them. Um, and the degree to which white folks can divorce themselves from whiteness is the degree to which we will see reconciliation and growth. That, that, that's bottom line for me. That's so good, Brandon. I love that so much. I mean, I, it, for me, it points back to, if we want to like anchor that in why we did the last five weeks. Um, so I wanted to start with like, let's just tell the truth 
right? So that's why we did the conversations. We started with confessions, and then we um, created caucuses so folks can sit with other folks who have similar lived experience and do interrogation. But in some of our staff conversations and in a lot of our one-on-one conversations, the question I always go back to um, is insisting that white folks ask other white folks, why do you need to believe in my inferiority? I think that's the only question that non-black folks should be asking themselves. Why do you need that lie? And that's a really heavy question. And so even as ferociously and as aggressively as I will spend the rest of my days attacking and standing up against white supremacy, I also understand the power in that question. Because to confront that question requires a level of courage, a depth of courage that you cannot muster up in your own natural strength. Mm -hmm. Because if you begin to consider that question, just before you even answer it, just consider that question, it's going to mean for many, for many people whose identity is like so integrated with whiteness, for them it's going to mean a complete deconstruction of their identity. Mm -hmm. And that is hard. It's a lot of work. That's hard. The problem is that the trappings that white folks find themselves in, the prison that they find themselves in is quite luxurious in America. You know, like why would you ever want to leave power and privilege? You know, like why would you ever want to leave those spaces? It's a very comfortable prison to be in. And, uh, and it's it, powerful. Yeah, and so if you think through this, you, you go, you think about, you know, um, in Exodus, you hear the, the narrative, like, folks are leaving Egypt. They're, they got 400 years of oppression, and they finally get out, and they're out in this desert, and all of a sudden, stuff starts looking hard. They start getting disoriented. Uh, their, their, uh, their identity was rooted in being slaves. Um, and so they found comfort in returning to slavery. Um, and I would say the same is, can be said of white folks, uh, that the, the, the danger is when you do get free. That's why you see some oscillation, too. You got folks that turn with allies, and all of a sudden you see them revert back to these, you know, like they're starting to you know, pivot a little bit. And you're like, why are you getting scared now? You know, like at the end of the day, it's like at the end of the day, like you're in this desert. You're scared. You're disoriented. You don't know your identity. And all of a sudden you're like, look, I'm going back to Egypt. At, le- at the very least, I know how I was going to get fed. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I know how I'm going to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. I knew how to operate in that system. Mm-hmm. And it, what the wilderness represents is this this complete this this void, this absence of structure, this 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 uh, like it's unforeseen. And it, it, the wilderness is disorientation. But but God always takes us to disorientation. He mm-hmm. always takes us to the wilderness. And if we're not experiencing the wilderness, we're not experiencing growth. We're not moving towards Him. That's right. We, we, we're always. We, we should always be in this this cycle of disorientation where we find ourselves interacting with this unknown, mm-hmm. this newness, this new revelation of who God is and who we are because of Him. Yes. There should always be that. And if we find ourselves stagnant and protecting. Um, this old revelation, these old thoughts of who we are and who God is in those moments, then that's problematic. That's when you, that's when you know you've, you've, you've died out and, you're, and your spiritual life is ebbing away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's something to be concerned with. I mean, you can't talk about white supremacy or anti-blackness without, even if you don't name it, um, without coming into direct contact with classism or more specifically capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm reminded of that though is you know, hearing um, about the trappings, the accoutrements Mm -hmm. of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's an intoxication. And when you inebriate it, your vision is impaired, right? Your senses are dull, you just don't make good decisions. You make really poor decisions, right? And so it makes me wonder like, what is the Christ follower's estimation Mm -hmm. of what is valuable? Right. Because if we think that the trappings of white supremacy are valuable, 
valuable enough for me to remain in this comfort. And I'm like, but what about the spiritual riches, though? Right. So you're, you're making some really dangerous trade-offs that is like taking us down this path of deepness that's going to, if we keep having this conversation, it's going to lead us to some questions that are going to have what's on our knees and on our faces yeah. at the altar. Yeah. Because we need to start over. So I, like I hear that, I think through um, the, like the spectrum of white supremacy and how it and how it's kind of deline- it delineates our human value and our proximity to whiteness kind of. Um, determines um, our, our success, um, the level of judicial un- uh, of abuse that you, you're subject to or not. Um, I, I think I think through that, and I, and I imagine like as a as a like, and it sounds stupid saying it this way, but like as a person, as a as a, as a group that's un, un, not necessarily to represent the poles of this spectrum, mm-hmm. this this man-made spectrum, but find mm-hmm. themselves in the middle of the spectrum. Um, I can imagine not being able to see beyond. Your your own station, like mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you look back, and, like why would you look back when you're still navigating your own mm-hmm. your own pursuit of trying to navigate white supremacy and whether or not to acquiesce to that reality and how, um, and I think by being more vocal, as you said, about labeling it um, white supremacy and anti-blackness, it forces all of us to kind of engage it in a strategic mm-hmm. way um, mm-hmm. that that includes the breadth and depth of the spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's something that we avoid when it's just white supremacy on its own. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. then white supremacy, it, it, it's abusing all of us <laughs> and it finds right. its way to infect all of us. Right. And so we can say white supremacy and you right. can be in, a, in a, a homogenous group of um, Asian Americans and still have to navigate um, white supremacy and wrestle with that. Um, yeah. And that's a different fight than the overall fight of like white supremacy, anti-blackness. Yes. Everybody yeah. in between, <laughs> like yeah. it, 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 and so there is a demonic force that is pervasive, that is comprehensive, and yeah. that it, its whole goal is to, not like not just delineate our humanity, but to damage the imago dei of everyone, mm-hmm. white folks included. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll wrestle that because because yes. I think what what we believe is that like our aspirations as people of color should be to become. The top of the echelon, or the top of the fray, the top of the fray. But in reality, um, that's that's like the world slipped upside down. We're climbing into a pit. Like, why would we? Why would we move deeper and deeper into that that void? Right. Um, because the imago day of yes. our white brothers and sisters are, is, is in such jeopardy. Yes. Is in, in in such danger, um, largely because it assumes that it reflects God the most. Mm. That it, it believes, it, they, it truly believes that it reflects God so much so that it gets to delineate humanity itself. Mm. And that, that's, a, that's a problem um, where it's working on becoming an idol. You know what God does with idols. Mm. So yeah. I, I think, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's a danger that, that, is, that goes unsaid that the Imago Dei of white folks is, is in, in the greatest amount of jeopardy um, when, we, when we engage in these conversations. Uh, there's one more hanging thing from this I want to come back to with you that you said. I think it's so important. I also think it needs a little more clarification. You, again, reiterate, I've heard you say this a lot lately, that perhaps the fundamental question for non-black folks, white folks especially, but non-black folks is, is why do you, uh, how do you, how, why do you, why need do you s- need to believe that lie? Why do you need to believe the lie that we're inferior, the black people are inferior, yes. right? Um, so where I'd love to t- have you take out the swing, I would imagine that it at least a conscious of what we're conscious of, I can't imagine there's any non-black person in River City who has not already rejected that lie verbally, yeah. right? So the starting point is I don't believe that, right? I, yes. I reject it with everything in me, yes. right? So it's a, it's, it's, it feels right to me, 
but it's a hard question to enter in when my starting point is already, I reject that yes. lie, right? So can you say more of yeah. why you still see it as the fundamental question? Yep, it's reminding me of that conversation we had in Whole Foods last year yeah. when I was remembering that portion of the psalm that ended up becoming a part of your sermon, yeah, right? Search me search out, oh God, yeah. and tell me if there's any wicked ways, wicky ways yeah, in me. So my suggestion for any non-black person who's instinctive reaction to that question is not me mm-hmm. is to just pause and pray that yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. just pause like resist yeah. the temptation or the urge to defend yourself and prove your goodness because it's not your goodness it's on trial anyway we're not right. good that's right, that's right. right? right. <laughs> whole sacrifice death burial resurrection happened for us yeah um so no need to defend that we all know the truth anyway but filthy rags, if not for right. his grace. Right. So pause and just pray that. Yep. Can I add one more thing? You've said to a lot the last week and see if these fit together. And if they don't, that's okay. Yeah. I may be putting things together. But you've said something in a different way I've never heard you say before this week, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, you said, if a white person is not conscious of the fact that they're in bondage to the lies of white supremacy, mm-hmm. then they're not even really in this work yet. No. Yeah. Which seems related to me because... For those of us who would say, I reject that lie, we're probably also saying, I'm not in bondage, right? I've already done that. Mm. And so I guess the power of that statement you said of like, so if that's my starting point, which I actually do want that to do, of course I reject that lie. But if my starting point is I've kind of now, that's my identity. I've rejected that lie. I'm moving into solidarity and stuff like that. Perhaps I'm actually almost almost disqualifying myself from this work, right? Because if I don't see myself as in a deeper bondage than I realize, yeah. which I think the Psalm 139 yeah. fits then, search me, Lord, to see how deep the bondage yes. goes. But do those feel like they're connected together or they am I connecting be. things? No, they could be. I, I'd want to think about it some more. Okay. Um, but the, the verse that's coming to mind is, um, I think it's in James, maybe not, but um, where he says that he gives more grace to the humble, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? More grace to the humble. Mm-hmm. Um, underscoring like, it, it, it you need humility in everything, but particularly in in this in this work, right? And yeah. so um, I'm losing my thoughts now. There was a reason I said that. That's just what's the the connection? So that's two different ideas: the need to continue to interrogate. Yeah. Why do I need that lie to be true? This other idea: if I don't realize I'm in bondage to it, oh, that, yes. yeah. So I'm yes. perhaps they're not totally connected. Yes. But that's you. You just said that in a more stark way this week than I've heard you say before, and I think that is true for me. I, I, that feels like one of the internal checks I do. Do I realize that I'm in bondage to this? Because yeah. you're not trying to get out of something until you realize you're in something, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of your point. Like the palate, the, the, it's not a real bad prison, right? So if I don't actually see myself as in bondage in this prison, I'm not actually all that motivated to get out, right? And so then I look for cheap ways. That's just the same to me, but I look for cheap ways to be in solidarity rather than saying, man, this thing, we're all in bondage, but I'm in my own form of bondage to this, right? And like, that's part of the ongoing conversation. Yeah, but there was a specific reason I brought up humility that's escaping me in the moment. It's it's a good point no matter what the question is. Absolutely. I would add add to your your, your answer. I would say that there's, at the end of the day, like, if you're out, then it doesn't, doesn't bother you to check to see if you, you are. <laughs> like, if you truly are out, then why not do the, the internal work to, to manage yourself, to ask the questions, but search me, God. Let me see if I'm out. But how do you mean, are you saying, you're, if you're comfortable if you're with the fact you're, that you're... If you're like, I'm no longer, I'm no, no longer trapped to the bondage of white yeah, supremacy, yeah. I'm free of this. Then it shouldn't feel threatening it shouldn't feel to threatening like, when do you to check increasing it. levels of <laughs> interrogation yeah. around the bondage. And yeah. if you feel threatened when you're getting checked on it, then you, you're still in. Yeah. I mean, but if we're if we're specifically talking about like just for example, folks at River City, yeah. right? Um, I would I would I would challenge that lovingly um, because one of the things there are a few ways that we describe white supremacy at our church, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about it and we talk about it's systemic, 
it's institutional, right. um, it's individual. It's coordinated. It's not one yes, no, no. but it's also atmospheric. Yeah. Yes. So if you believe that, right. right, and every single one of us, black folks included, have all acknowledged that because it's atmospheric, yes. we're all susceptible to That's it. Right. We're all always inhaling its toxins. That's right. Yeah. So how, who, who would dare say? That's right. Right? It's the same way we're all like literally susceptible to every sin. So that's why I was thinking about humility because it's pretty haughty to say, I'm not likely, I don't have the proclivity or the inclination to commit any sin when absolutely you do. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. I want to both say amen, that should be clear, and I think it rarely is. And so I guess I'm trying to draw that. You know, yeah. I, I think there's something deep in the kind of psychological profile of like how whiteness makes sense of all this that is looking for the high ground that says, you know, I'm on the side of those who are not advancing this problem. I'm yeah. on the side of those who don't believe this lie. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. Not that any of those are bad in of themselves, but yeah. that becomes a release from doing this work. And, but see, this yeah. is just human nature, but this goes back to why I always say, and I've been, this is, it's been something that has annoyed me for a very long time. It's like, I want the church to take over this conversation. Yes. Yeah. So we can just talk about this. Yeah. Yes. In the ways we yes. talk about sin. Yes. We have complicated this by adopting the world's jargon and language around this yes. stuff. You got people who literally sitting on the sidelines afraid to engage because they don't know the lexicon. Yes. It ain't yeah. that deep. So the Listen In podcast will cover race, culture, and faith. Um, and we realized, too, as we were talking about like what the podcast should be about, that race, that white supremacy and anti-blackness will be the undercurrent of everything that we discuss. Yeah. Um, it'll always be the elephant in the room. And yeah. so we thought that the roundtable discussion that punctuated the four-part series that we took our church through yeah. um, was a really solid way to introduce right. um, who we are, um, how we think about these issues, but specifically race and white supremacy. Right. Um, it also gives like a really good sample of how we interact and how we talk about these things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I think this is going to be a really significant episode for our, our, our community, um, our listeners. Um, um, the, the, the concept in the, uh, of anti-blackness and white supremacy being bedfellows along with um, yeah. the narrative of racial hierarchy is, uh, is it, it's foundational. Right. Um, for this work um, as, as we talked about it before we go back and forth through the episodes we were trying to plan out the episodes we kept coming back to these these kind of themes and, right. I, and I, th I feel like you're going to see these themes like as a plumb line throughout everything um, right. that we, we talk about for this season right yeah, I might add on that too. It's just even as we've been planning the different conversations we'll have within this, like I, I like our next two episodes talking about uh, what's up with Karen, really exploring <laughs> that. Um, please sit down, Ken, uh, some important conversations there. Yeah. But every time we did that, we realized without establishing some common language here, without really getting mm -hmm. into the depth of what white supremacy is, the depth of what anti-blackness is. And I know it'll be broader than a white listener base to this show, but you know, this may be something to helpful to share our group too, that the, the white community, the Latinx community, the Asian American community all began doing weekly caucuses after this uh -huh. round yeah. table. And uh -huh. so that speaks to the, the level of impact this particular conversation had mm -hmm. and just the straightforward, and I think, and I think it's important, the, the black-ledness of this conversation, yeah. you know, with you two as thought leaders, both within our city, both within our church, in the way um, you just, you just in a, in a very kind of frank and unvarnished way, kind of expose some of this stuff. So I, I think this is really important, just even as a standalone, but also kind of set the stage for the kind of conversations we're going to have over the course of this season. That wraps up this week's conversation. Thank you for listening to Listen In with Shamika, Brandon, and Daniel. Please subscribe to 
comment on and rate listen in wherever you listen to podcasts. We want to hear from you, so follow us on Instagram at listeninpod or write us at hello at listeninpodcast.com. Have a great week.